So let's turn to Hebrews 3 together and let's pick up where we left off last time in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 19 this afternoon, and I'm going to preach a sermon that I have entitled, Learn from Israel. Learn from Israel. You've heard the saying, right? If you don't learn from the past, you're bound to repeat it, right? So learn from Israel because they forfeited rest because of their disobedient unbelief. So follow with me. Let's read the paragraph. Hebrews 3 beginning in verse 12. This is what the Lord says to us in his word. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. We are a beach family. My family loves the beach. We went to the beach a couple of weeks ago, as you all know that. We're so thankful for these times away. It's almost like we can smell the beach and smell the salt water, and our van just sort of goes in that direction. And we love the beach. We enjoy our family vacations, the pool time, the beach time, lots of eating, lots of laughs, lots of fun, watching Wipeout together, playing volleyball and spike ball on the beach and lots of games on the beach. We have so much fun on our beach vacations. But when we go to the beach, there's something that we see inevitably every year. When we're coming to, uh, off off the little boardwalk to the sand, there are these flags that are there. They they are beach flags, and they're there to inform, and they are there to warn. And there's a green flag. Green flag means there's not many waves. The current is pretty mild. Swim and have fun. Then there's the yellow flag, and the yellow flag is a little bit more of a strong undertow. The current is a little bit stronger. Be careful and take caution when you're in the water. And then there's the red flag, which we love the most. These are, it's a pretty strong undertow and big waves and have fun in the ocean and But be careful, they are big and strong. But then there's the double red flags. That's nobody go in the water. It's too powerful, too strong. The current is too strong. There's even a purple flag. Look out for the marine life when they're coming near the beach. Those are not very fun. But we don't get mad when we see the flags. We don't get mad at that. Rather, when we're going to the beach, we observe, we take notice, and we take action, and we respond accordingly, according to what the flag reveals. Because warnings are good. Warnings are helpful. Warnings are protective. Warnings are there for 
our good. We need to hear and we need to heed warnings. The Bible does that. Psalm 78 is one of my favorite psalms. It's one of the longest psalms. And guess what? It's a history of Israel so that you learn from them and you are warned not to repeat what they did. Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Psalm 107 are also called historical psalms, recounting Israel and the failures of how they rebelled against God. The Bible teaches in 2 Kings 17, 13, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through the prophets to turn from their wicked ways. We read in Jeremiah 6, verse 8, that Jeremiah warned Jerusalem that judgment was coming. God told the prophet Ezekiel that he is a watchman and he is to warn the wicked to turn from their wickedness. Ezekiel 3.19. John the Baptist, he saw the most religious people of his day walking toward him, the Pharisees, and he warned them to flee from the wrath to come. Matthew 3.7. Paul warned the Thessalonian church against living in sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6. Later on in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 25, how will someone escape wrath who turns away from God who warns from heaven? Warning, warning, warning. We, we need warnings. We benefit from warnings. And Hebrews chapter 3, where we are and what I just read a few moments ago, is a warning text. But before we jump in here, let me just remind you of where we are in the book of Hebrews as a whole. The whole book of Hebrews is a sermon that has one main theme. Ready? Jesus is better. He's better. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus is better. Hebrews 1, 4 tells us that. We read in Hebrews 1, verse 2, that God has spoken in his Son, who is the heir of all things, and he made the world. And in Hebrews 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He made purification of sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is great. He is God. He is majestic. He is better and supreme. And Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, the author makes the case that Jesus is better than the angels. Because the angels were highly revered to the Jewish people, and, 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 and Octor says, no, 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 Jesus is better than angels. Because chapter 1, he's God, and chapter 2, he's man, and he made atonement. He's better. Chapter 3, the author says, he's better than Moses. Look back. Look back. Look at how Israel led by Moses. Look at how they disobeyed. Don't be like them. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. And remember how when we were together last, look at Hebrews 3 verse 12. Do you see the warning here? There's a warning. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. This is a warning text. Be careful that you don't fall away. Verse 13 tells us to encourage each other day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
And then we have been reading all through chapter 3, and it's going to come in chapter 4 as well, this topic of rest. When we open the door to this topic of rest, it's almost like we're entering into a biblical theological galaxy. There's a huge, huge topic here of rest in the Bible. You all know the Hebrew word for rest. It's one of the themes in the whole Old Testament. It's the word Noah. Noah is the word rest. And it comes from Genesis chapter 5 and verse 29, that a man would be born who would give rest. He would give rest. But the Bible talks a lot about rest. When God created the world and all that is in it in six 24-hour days, the Bible says in Genesis 2 that he rested on the seventh day from everything that he had made. God has a rest. According to the book of Joshua, when the people of Israel perished in the wilderness and there was a new generation that was born, they entered the promised land that was called rest. For the people of Israel then. That was another kind of rest. But then the Bible says in the time of David, hundreds of years after Joshua, David says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Because if you do, God says, they will never enter my rest. God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God said that he had given rest to David on all sides. And he made this wonderful covenant with David that a Messiah would be born who would give rest. Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 6 that there is a rest in heaven that we believers will enjoy. I mean, this is a huge theme when we talk about rest, and we're going to talk about it today. This is a huge theme that the Bible brings out. But here's what you need to know tonight. Today, you can enter in. That's the point. Today, you can enter in, but don't harden your heart. Don't leave here unchanged. Don't leave here unbelieving. Don't leave like Israel of old, seeing what God did, starting well, but ending badly. Today, the rest is available. Enter in, come into this rest and enjoy the rest that God provides. So when we were together last, we looked at the peril. Remember that in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12? Let me just remind you, point one I brought out was the peril. Be careful, brethren, that there is not in any among us an evil, unbelieving heart that apostatizes or falls away from the living God. My great fear, little footnote here, is that anyone would go to hell from the pews of Christ Fellowship Bible Church. It's my greatest fear as a pastor that somebody would be filled with sermon hearing but have a heart that is unchanged. And the peril, the peril, and that's what Octor says when he's preaching this. He says, be careful that there not be in any among you an evil, unbelieving heart that hears the word, but you fall away. 
That's the peril. Then last time we were together, I gave you point number two, which is the protection. So what do you do about it? If, if I don't want to fall away, if, if I, if I want to hold on to Christ, what do I do? And look at verse 13. This is the protection. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God gives the protection. And you know what it is? One another. It's one another. Encourage one another. That's what we need to do. The Christian life is not an isolated, me-centered thing that I do on my own out there. It's a together community where we edify, we encourage, we reprove, we grow together in Christ. This is the protection. Well, now in verses 14 to 19, I want to give you the proof. I want to give you the proof Because what the author is going to do, he's going to say to the congregation, look, look back. Do do, do you remember Israel? Look back at Israel. And and, and I want you to learn from Israel because, because they are proof of the danger of falling away. They are proof because because they started well, but they ended badly. Let me read this for you. In Romans chapter 15, just listen to this, verse 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Later on in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the point for us is we need to learn. We have, a, we have an Old Testament that is filled not just with stories, but it's filled with so many ways that we can learn about God and ways that we can learn from bad examples and from good examples as well. But we want to learn from the scriptures. So if you're taking notes today, what I want to give you and the points that we have is I want to give you three lessons as we look back and learn from Israel. Okay, three lessons. So if you're taking notes, jot these down. They're very simple. They're very brief hopefully memorable. Number one, you must persevere. That's the first lesson. Israel didn't. You must persevere. Number two, you must remember. You must remember. We do well to remember Israel and learn from them. Number three, what we're going to see is you must rely, or maybe you could even write down, you must believe. You must believe. So we must persevere, we must remember, and then we must rely, believe in the Lord. So three lessons as we look back and learn from Israel. Look in your Bible. Let's begin now in verse 14. After Achdor warns in verse 12, don't let there be an evil, unbelieving heart. And then verse 13, he says, but I want you to encourage each other day after day. Now in verse 14, Here's the first lesson. You must persevere. You must persevere. For, verse 15, uh, verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast 
the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So how do you know that you are really a Christian? How do you know that you're really in Christ? Answer right here in this context, you know, because you persevere. You know because you hold on to Christ. Here's the lesson. The lesson is this. It's not enough to have a really good start. It's not enough to have a really good start because assurance in the Bible, knowing that you're a Christian, never comes from a past decision that maybe you made 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Assurance comes from a continual devotion to Christ. It wasn't very long ago, I was at the abortion mill and a lady screams out the window, I'm a Christian too. I prayed a prayer. I said, ma'am, you need to repent of your sin. Assurance of salvation does not come from something that you did 20 years ago. Assurance in the Bible comes from a continual devotion to Christ. That's what the author brings out in our context here. And let me show you that. Look in verse 14. We are partakers of Christ. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. We are partakers of Christ if if we hold fast. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm into the end. Look look earlier in chapter 3, verse 6. Same thing. Chapter 3, verse 6, Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Here's the point. You prove your salvation by persevering. Your salvation is genuine as you go on and as you grow up in Christ. Jesus talks about this, doesn't he? In the parable of the soils, right? There's a lot of people who seem to hear the word and seem to make a a good response to the faith and everything looks good, but after a while they fall away. They fall away. A genuine faith is a persevering faith. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, but but what about these people that I knew and they used to go to church and they made a profession and, and they did all these great things and they went on a mission trip and yet now they're not walking with Christ. What about them? 1 John 2, 19 says they went out from us because they were not really of us. Because if they really had been of us, of the Christian community, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be proven that they are not of us. A lot of people can make a religious start. But when one does not persevere, when one does not hold on to Christ, it shows that that profession of faith is just merely a profession, but not really a possession. Look at how the author even clarifies this. Look at chapter 6. We're going to get here. This is another warning passage. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, Hebrews 6, 11, the author says, We desire that each of you show the same diligence as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 11, we want you to show diligence. 
diligent to realize the full assurance of hope firm into the end. Hebrews chapter 10 brings out the same thing in verse 35. Don't throw away your confidence. Hebrews 10, 36, you have need of endurance. Hebrews 10, 39, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So when the Bible says, back to Hebrews chapter 3 here, 3 verse 14, if we hold fast, what does it mean to hold fast the assurance of our hope? What does that mean? It means in the Greek that we are holding steadfastly. There's a related word in Greek for cement. We ought to be cemented to Christ. We ought to be continually holding on to Christ. We ought to be firmly grasping on to Christ. We ought to not let up until we make it to glory. To hold fast means to abide in Christ, to believe in Christ, to continue in Christ, to remain in Christ, to follow Christ, to obey Christ, to love him, to fear him. These are phrases the Bible brings out. For believing, for holding fast, for clinging to Christ. And as you hold fast that assurance of hope that you have, as you hold fast the beginning of our assurance, as you hold on to Christ, you prove that you are, look at verse 14, a partaker. It's one of the great phrases in the book of Hebrews. If you're a Christian here today, you're a partaker of Christ. And maybe a little bit more familiar, that means you're united to Christ. It means in the ESV has it well, you're sharers in Christ. Or another English translation has, you are participants in Christ. It means that you're united to him. It means that, 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 that Jesus lives in you the hope of glory so that he is yours and you are his. You are married to him eternally. To be united to Christ, I think, is greatly defined in Galatians 2 verse 20. Christ lives in me. You're, you're a partaker of Christ. You're united to Christ. How do you know if, verse 14 says, if you hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end? A partaker of Christ, to be united with Christ. Christian, hear this. That means you're partakers in Christ's life. His life is yours. His obedience is yours. His righteousness is yours. You're partakers in his death. You're partakers in his atonement. You're partakers in his resurrection. You are partakers in his ascension into heaven. You are with him, united to him in his session, seated at the right hand of the Father. You are partakers with him when he returns again one day. I mean, to imagine the security of you saying, I am a partaker of Christ. I am united to Christ. I am his, and he is mine. To be a partaker of Christ means, Christian, that you're connected to Christ's life. It means you're united to Christ's power. 
It means that you are secured by his grip. It means that you're satisfied by his love. It means that you are joyful in his blessings. It means that you're adopted by his mercy. It means that you're forgiven all by his grace. It means that you're justified by his merits. And it means that you are exceedingly glad in his character. All that Christ is, is mine. I I have this. I'm, I'm his. And if you're a Christian, you are a partaker. You are united to Christ. Which I think brings us to the doctrine of eternal security. It brings us to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that God will preserve in faith all those whom he gave to the Son and all those whom the Son died for. Everyone who is truly saved will make it to heaven. None will ever be lost. None could ever be lost, because if any could be lost, we all would be lost. But how do you know? How do you know that you're his? That's the point of verse 14. How do we know that we're really partakers? Answer. Octor gives the answer. The answer is you're holding fast to Christ. So, do you? When the times are good and when the times are bad. Do you hold fast to Christ when times are uncertain and when times are trying? Do you hold fast to Christ when times are prolonged and when times and trials are intensifying? Do you hold fast to this assurance firm until the end, even when times are lonely and when times are oppressive? Well, how do we do this? How do, we, how do we hold firmly? You say, Jeff, I get the theology. I understand it, but, but I want to do it. Help me see some practical ways that I can hold firmly to this assurance. Let me give you some simple little points. Number one, you need full dependence on God. Full dependence on God. No reliance on self. No reliance on what you can achieve, what you can accomplish, what you can do, what you can achieve. Full dependence upon God. How do you persevere in the faith? How do you hold fast? Number two, daily devotion to Scripture. Daily. It's, it's shocking to me when I meet with men and women for biblical counseling and they say, you know, I really want to walk with the Lord and I want to have this or I want to have that and I want to get over this trial. And inevitably, my question is, well, tell me about your time in the Word. And you know what they say? I could always do better. Well, I could do better. We could all do better. But I want to know how many times are you reading? Once a week? What? Do you eat meals once a week? Well, no, we eat numerous times a day. How much more do we need the regular intake of God's word for our daily growth? Number three, we need a real determination to pray. A real, how do we persevere in the faith? We need a real determination to pray. Lord, I I need you. Lord, I desire you. Lord, I want more of your control. I want more of the Spirit's filling in my life. I want to honor you. I want to glorify you. Show me your glory. 
Number four, how do we persevere? We need a heartfelt delight in worship. A heartfelt delight in worship. You know why? That's what we're going to do in heaven. So we're going to do in heaven. So we, 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 will, we want a heartfelt delight in our God and worshiping him and extolling him and his character and his work and his gospel. Fifth, if we are to persevere, I think number five, we need an eager anticipation for heaven. Just personally, in, one of, in my life, one of the areas where I've been convicted, where I need to grow is thinking so little on the rapture of the church and the coming of the Lord. I need to think more about heaven. I need to think more about being with Christ. I need to think more about seeing the face of God. Because guess what? This world isn't my home. It's only a persevering faith that is a saving faith. So what what is the author saying in this whole section where he's warning the church congregation, don't let there be an evil, unbelieving heart. Learn from Israel. What's the first lesson? Number one, you must persevere. You must persevere. Church family, you must persevere. And this is not Jeff saying, come on, try harder. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Come on, you got to do better. Because as you persevere and grow, guess what? It's God who is persevering and preserving you every step of the way. Okay? Number one, you must persevere. Let me give you number two, another lesson that we can learn from Israel. Number two, you must remember. You must remember. And we do this when we have the Lord's Supper. It's so important to remember. I mean, is your phone like mine? You've got alerts and bells and reminders and alarms and all kinds of things going off, vibrating all the time. This thing is going off because I need to remember. God tells Israel, Deuteronomy 32, verse 7, remember the days of old. That's good counsel from the Lord to Israel. Remember the days of old. Do we remember? Look at what the author does now in our text, Hebrews 3, look at verse 15. So the author has said, we are partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm. What's that beginning? It's the faith. It's the gospel. We hold on. Verse 15, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, says when they provoked me. That's a quote from Psalm 95. Don't, Don't harden your hearts like Israel did. And then after repeating this command to not harden your hearts like Israel did, if you look carefully, look in your English Bible at verse 16, 17, and 18. You see similar beginning phrases there. Verse 16, for who? Look at verse 17, with whom? Verse 18, to whom? Remember them. To whom? To whom? To whom? To whom? Remember Israel of old? Remember them? These are three questions that emphasize, hear this very carefully, don't miss this point. Israel was in the position of privilege, but they sinned so grievously. They were in the position of privilege, yet they sinned so grievously. And the author is saying, remember that and don't let that happen to you. It's kind of like this, if I could illustrate it. 
It's like a man who's playing baseball and he plays for the major leagues, okay? And uh, he's really good. He's breaking all these records. He's a super good baseball player playing in the major leagues. And after the winter break, he comes back and he begins to be a little arrogant. He's a little prideful, a little proud, and he's a little lazy. When he comes to spring training, his work ethic has declined. Uh, He has suffered in his batting. He's made some terrible errors. He's dropped some of the balls. Throwing is not as accurate. His running is quite slower. After all this, with the spring training, he realizes the sobering fact that they terminated his contract and sent him down to the minors. What's the lesson? Starting well with such a great privilege doesn't guarantee that you end well. Right? Starting well doesn't guarantee that you end well. I mean, let Judas Iscariot be an example of all of that to us, right? King Saul in the Old Testament is an example of that, starting well but ending badly. Remember, Demas in the New Testament started well but ended badly. Israel, remember them? Akdor is saying, remember Israel? They had spiritual privileges, but they ended tragically. They had a good start, but they had a terrible ending. They started well, but they ended badly. Boys and girls, can y'all look at me for a sec? Boys and girls, give me your eyeballs. This is especially important for you, just like the older ones here. Because every one of you are in a position of spiritual privilege. Every one of you. You you hear the catechism. You hear sermons. You hear teaching. Not just at church when we gather. But you hear it every day at home. You hear it from your mom. You hear it from your dad. You hear it in the teaching. You hear it in in their schooling. You, You hear all the time. You are in a place of privilege. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You should be thankful to God for where he has you in your lives. But starting well doesn't mean that you'll die well. What would God say to you? Boys and girls, God would say, persevere and believe on Christ. Every day of your life. What would God say to you? He would say, boys and girls, cling to Jesus Christ tighter than anything else in this world. Boys and girls, God would say to you, stay with Jesus. Don't depart from him. Don't leave him. Don't abandon him. Don't give up the faith and say like many people on college campuses, they'll say to to me, you know, pastor, I grew up in a Christian home. I used to believe that. Well, no, you, I guess, never really did believe that genuinely. That's why you need to come to Christ. Oh, having, having a good start, having a godly beginning is a great thing. Being in a place of spiritual privilege is so great. But the point of the section here is don't harden your hearts. Learn from Israel. Right? They had good leaders. They had Moses. They had Joshua. They saw the wonders of the ten plagues. They came out of Egypt. They saw the Red Sea part in two. They walked on dry land. They saw the miracles. They were spared by the blood of a lamb that covered them. 
and preserved them. God guided them into the wilderness. They received the law of God. They defeated the Egyptians. They worshiped in the wilderness. They erected a tabernacle. They received mercy and manna and water constantly from God. Spiritual privilege doesn't mean that you end well. That's the whole point of this section in Hebrews. Learn from Israel and don't make their mistake. Okay, look with me at verse 16. Here's how we see it. The first question, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? I mean, there were many who heard, but they provoked God and they died. Verse 17, here's the second question. And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? I mean, God guided them. He provided for them, but they rebelled and they died. Verse 18, here's the third question. And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? I mean, they disobeyed God. They, 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 they sinned against God, and God covenantally swore, you won't enter my saving rest. They suffered. They died because of their disobedience, and unbelief. What is Octor saying? Octor saying, remember, 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 don't let their story of sin, failure, disobedience, rebellion, unbelief, don't let their story become your story. Remember. So number one, what are these lessons that we learn here from our text? Number one, you must persevere. Christian, what, what, what is God saying to you from his word? Persevere. Hold fast to Christ. What is he saying? Number two, remember. You've got to remember. Remember Israel. Remember the place of privilege that they had, but they forfeited that by their disobedience. You must persevere. Number two, you must remember. Now let me give you number three. You must rely. You must rely, or if you're taking notes, you could even jot down, you must believe. It's, it's really the same thing in verse 19 here. Because, because verse 19 is the conclusion. Do you see it in your Bible? Verse 19 begins in our English translations, so we see. What a great way to render this. So we see. Here's the conclusion. Here's the outcome. Here's the result. So we see. Look at verse 19. What's the root of all of the problems? We see that they, that is Israel, they were not able to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. I mean, we've, we've been reading about an evil heart. We've been reading about a heart that is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin We've been reading in verse 15 about not hardening our hearts. We've been, we've been reading in verse 16 about those who provoked God. We've been reading about those who sinned and their bodies fell in the wilderness. We've been reading verse 18 about those who were disobedient to God. And yet all of the sins that this whole paragraph brings out comes from one fountainhead. Unbelief. Unbelief. 
I want you to listen. I want to dwell on this for a minute. Unbelief is the mother that gives birth to all other sins. Unbelief is disobedience. Unbelief provokes God. Unbelief is being hardened by sin. Unbelief can include falling away. It can include rejecting Christ. It is not submitting to him. Unbelief is what locked the door to the promised land and kept Israel out. They unbelieved. Unbelief is the greatest stumbling block in our lives. So often we can say with that father, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. Unbelief is the chief wickedness. Unbelief is the mother's sin, the father's sin, the parent's sin. It is the sin of all sins. It is unbelief that caused Eve to sin against God in the Garden of Eden because she did not believe what God said was good and best. But in that moment of unbelief, she believed what Satan said and promised was better. Unbelief is what shuts people out of heaven. Unbelief is the root of the sin of provoking God. It robs God of his glory. It robs the unbeliever of the privilege of God's blessings. And one of the things that is amazing to me when I read the gospel of Mark is that little verse in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, when it says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. I mean, what causes God to marvel Unbelief. What what, what is the author saying here? In the sermon, he says, therefore, we see that they, Israel, they were not able to enter the promised land. They They were not able to enter the rest that God provided and promised because of their unbelief. So what do we do? We want to have faith. Let me illustrate this with you. Go back with me to Romans 4. Let's let's look at faith. And I I want all of you to turn there, even boys and girls. I want you to see this as well. Romans chapter 4. This is right in the middle of the theological section of how does a person get right with God? How does a person become forgiven? How does he know that he is counted righteous before God? Look with me. Let's let's start in Romans 4, beginning in verse 17. This is is Paul writing about faith. And in verse 17, he says, As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. That's God's promise to Abraham. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead, and he calls into being that which does not exist. Okay, verse 18. Look at what we read about Abraham. In hope against hope, he believed. Meaning when people thought, this is absolute foolishness. What are you believing for? It's not going to happen. 
Everybody told him he was stupid for believing this. No, no, no. He believed, verse 18, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Wait, wait, wait. God said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And he's like... I'm a hundred years old. How's that going to happen? And my wife is almost as old as I am. Verse 20. What do we read? Yet with respect to the promise of God, he, Abraham, did not waver in unbelief. He didn't waver in unbelief. Look at this. But he grew strong in faith. And when you do that, look at the next phrase. It gives glory to God. This is our example. This is our example. We need to learn from Israel. They were unbelieving. They were disobedient. What does God want for us? Learn from Abraham. Growing strong in faith. Not wavering in unbelief. Isn't it a tragedy though? Isn't it a devastation and a disaster that, that there are those who hear of the invitation today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart, but enter into the, into the kingdom, believe on Christ, receive the forgiveness, and yet some are like, no! I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's like a drowning man who throws away the life preserver, it's like, a, it's like a poisoned person who pours out all the medicine on the floor. It's like a wounded person who just tears open all the bloody wounds and rejects any help. All of which is a tragic thought. But if the person who hears of Christ and he says, no, I don't want that. I will live on in my sin. I will live on in my unbelief. I will live on in my disobedience. And they choose their own destruction in hell by remaining in unbelief. What would God say to that person? He would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because to believe in this Christ means that you rely. It means that you cling to Jesus. It means that you're united to a living person. Believing is really saying no to sin and yes to God. Believing is trusting Jesus Christ, being done with yourself, being done with self-confidence, being done with self-reliance, and clinging to Jesus and believing in the light and becoming sons of light. That's why the apostles said in Acts 15, 11, we believe that we are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. So, so that means that you must trust and you must rely and you must surrender and you must cling. But Israel didn't do that. 
They had all the privileges. And that's why our text is a warning when he says, Today, if you hear God's voice from the word, don't harden your heart because Israel did. And they died. And they perished. So, as I draw this to a close, what, what are some protections? What, what, what are some designs of God to help us so that we can grow strong in faith and not waver in unbelief? What, what are some protective measures that we can take? What are some guardrails that God has given to us? Let me just give you five. It's going to come from a pastoral heart in reflecting on the word here. Number one, I think there must be a prioritizing of the regular meetings with the church family. I was sharing this week with a counselee in the counseling room. You will not grow spiritually if you're not actively, listen, not just attending a church, that's easy, serving your church family. We, we, we need this. God has given the beauty of the body of Christ. And so we, we, we want to prioritize the regular meetings with the church family so that we, we serve, so that we encourage, so that we minister, so that we edify, so that we communicate with and strengthen and bear the burdens of one another and help each other along. Number two, along with that, let me give you a second protection that God has given. Number two, encourage one another in the word regularly. Husbands, do it with your wives. Wives, do that with your husbands. Parents, do that with your children. Church members, do that with each other. It can be an email, it can be a text, it can be a phone call, it can be a handwritten letter, it can be when we see each other here face to face, encourage, and here's the proof, verse 13 of our text, encourage each other day after day, as long as it is still called today. We, worldly talk is easy, and you get that at work Monday morning. And that doesn't mean that worldly talk is all bad and sinful, don't misunderstand me. But when we're with the people of God and we're partakers of Christ together, there's something unique that we have with each other that we can talk about. Number three, another protection from God. Confess, forsake, and replace your sin quickly. Adultery, pornography, Addictions in all the different forms, murder, those don't just happen in a moment. When it becomes public, it's usually the visible result of a lot of unconfessed sins along the way that finally became public. That's why the word is so important for us here in Hebrews 3. Take care that there not be an evil, unbelieving heart in any of us. So when there's sin, guess what? We have a throne of grace that we can go to, right? We have an inviting Savior who tells us to come. We have a God who promises that he's forgiven his people in Christ. 
confess, forsake, and replace your sin quickly and intentionally. Let me give you a fourth protection that I think we can glean from all of this. Number four, Christian, press harder into Christ. It's like a married couple. On the day of the wedding, you're joined together in a covenant. That's wonderful. I'm not minimizing that. But after years and years of being together, you grow. You know each other. You understand each other. Press harder into Christ as we are growing in this covenant marriage with Christ. Press harder into Christ with with a holy boldness and a single-mindedness toward Christ. How else can we cultivate this protection in this warning section? Let me just give you one final reminder for us. Number five, cultivate thankfulness. Cultivate thankfulness and contentment in Christian love. One of the great ways that God protects his people is as we meet together and encourage each other and we're confessing our sin and we're pursuing our Savior together and we're striving to live thankful and content and loving lives with one another. So question for all of us, and maybe for some who are here today and you're outside of Christ, you're not in Christ. Where else will you go? I mean, if not Christ, then where? I mean, if you're not going to trust in Christ, well, where are you going to go? He's got the words of eternal life, John 6. He is God and he is eternal life, 1 John 5. He is the fullness of joy of life, John 15. And he is the one who gives eternal life to his sheep forever, John 10. If not Christ, where are you going to go? I mean, it's it's like what the apostles said, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Second, remember, this is a warning text. This is a warning against disbelieving the voice from God in the word of God. Don't harden your heart. It's like that warning flag. When we see it at the beach, and if it's a double red flag, there's a strong current. There's a strong undertow. It's a warning. Don't go in there. Something bad is going to happen if you do. God gives a warning. Let's hear it. Let's heed it. Let's pay attention and examine our hearts. For those who are clinging to Jesus Christ here this afternoon, you're clinging to Christ, you're holding fast to him, you're you're holding firmly to him, you're a partaker with Christ, you're united to him, listen to the benefits that you enjoy, okay? Every spiritual blessing in heaven from God is yours because of your union with Christ. It gives you assurance. It's profoundly intimate. It's the fountain, the source of all salvation blessings. Your election is in Christ. Your calling is in Christ. Your justification is in Christ. Your adoption is in Christ. Your sanctification is in Christ. Your glorification is in Christ. And we even remember these things when we take the Lord's Supper together and remember Christ together. 
No doctrine is more central and more vast and more comforting and more secure in the whole New Testament than your union with Christ. Christian, hear that and be refreshed. We are partakers. We are united to Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. May the Lord keep us faithful to hold on to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is reliable and true and steadfast, authoritative. O oh, great God, for those in this place who are right now in the state of spiritual unbelief, Merciful and loving God, absolutely shatter their pride and give them life. We pray that you would save them today while they hear God's voice from the word. May they not harden their hearts. And may that be so for all of us. May we cling to Christ. May we hold fast to Christ. May we persevere in Christ. And may we show that we are partakers of Christ as we learn from Israel of old and continue day by day to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.